Welcome to the latest episode of the MarTech Alliance Marketing Technology Book Club. I'm your founder of the MarTech Alliance. I'm Carlos Doughty, and today I'm with Tom Goodwin, author of Digital Darwinism, Survival of the Fittest in the Age of Business Disruption. Tom is Executive Vice President and Head of Innovation at Zenith Media, co-founder of Interesting People in Interesting Times, a speaker, author, consultant, a self-styled industry provocateur, and commentator on the future of marketing, technology, and business. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Can you some, please summarize your book in one of your infamous tweet style one-liners? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, the book was written by me being quite angry and frustrated, so it feels quite tweetable already. Um, I got very frustrated with the way that people were talking about change in the world and the way the companies weren't changing and that they didn't seem to be particularly excited by technology. Like, I do not think it's the case that every company is existentially screwed by technology. I don't think that every company needs to change. But there are a lot of companies and businesses and categories out there that really need to get excited about technology and to sort of embrace it. And they need to think about it in a much more sort of profound and existential way. We see a lot of what I call digital garnish, which is where companies sort of add sprinklings of very sort of tangible and fanciful technology around the edges of their business. So airlines will employ, you know, one member of staff to wear a VR headset or banks will employ one stupid robot in one branch. And it's all very much about sort of status signaling to Wall Street or to the city to sort of tell the world that they get it. And actually, most of these companies really need to be rebuilt. Like they really need to work around new behaviors, new customer expectations, the power of technology to do things in much more efficient ways. We're trying to get people excited, trying to get people uh, to be more aware of what this means for their business. And it tries to then give them some steps that they can undertake and some methodology to frame this opportunity in a way that makes sense for them. I mean, that's definitely more than 286 characters, but we'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's more of a, it was a screen grab of an image that was attached to it. There you go, that's, that, that's the get out of jail free card. <laughs> um, can you tell us, if you were setting up a business today, and maybe you are, but can you sort of paint us a picture? How would that company look? What would you be doing from ground zero? Well, I mean, that's exactly the right question because it's much harder to sort of turn a beast around than it is to start something afresh. I think there, there are two ways to think about the world. One is to look at what technology makes possible. And you can layer through things like VR or AI or the Internet of Things, 5G. And you can think, right, what do, what do all these tools allow me to do now that other people are not doing? And you can work around that. But that's actually really hard to do. Like, it's, it's really hard to find a technology which is so profound in what it means that that inspires the business. And instead, it's easier to think the other way around, which is to just look at people. You know, go to India and look at how people are behaving. Go to a third tier city in China and look at how teenagers use phones. Go to America and see how tricky the banking environment is there. And then just to think, what, what kind of unmet customer needs are there? Like, what kind of disappointments are there out there? What friction is there within? In different processes and how do we sort of remove that and then that will give you the sort of the, the start of an idea or the start of a value prop 
position. And then I think based on that, you then construct an entirely new entity around that. And it means that you probably won't employ as many people. Probably have, you know, sort of freelancers that you pull in on, on, on sort of demand. You'll probably use the very latest and best software applications, which are often surprisingly thin and surprisingly cheap. Probably have a data strategy that involves making sure that every department and every person can access the same cleanse data in one place and they know why. So you'd really start with this blank sheet of paper. And it's odd because very small new companies are actually able to do better things than big companies. Like I know a cosmetics company which is unable to procure ingredients for the same cost as a friend of mine. So, so it really is a sort of remarkable time for these companies that don't have this baggage from the past who are naive enough to ask stupid questions and realize that those questions unlock the most value. Like it's a really remarkable time to set up a business like that. And, and what do you think the biggest baggage is? Is it people that are really adverse to change? Is it, is it legacy systems? Is it a mix of all? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's a real mixture of those things. It sounds a bit trite, but I think often what big companies suffer from is too much knowledge and expertise about the way that things have been done before. And that kind of gets in the way. So if you're a car company, you are unbelievably expert in knowing how to create combustion engines and you're incredible at knowing how to create gearboxes and transmission systems and you're really good at knowing how to create in-car entertainment and you're great at knowing the politics of managing a dealership network you're brilliant at knowing lease rates and financial packages and how do you create a spare parts network and then along comes a company like tesla and actually none of that knowledge was particularly useful for them like because they didn't have a dealership network to support they could go direct because they're dealing with electronic engines actually like the car becomes more about assembly than it is about fabrication all of the knowledge that you've had about uh, how gearboxes work is completely irrelevant you can start to sort of rethink well actually you know we don't know how people expect to uh, interact with their touch screens now so why don't we just sort of create a few prototypes and, and sort of see how people behave and you really see that this sort of entrained trench knowledge from the past is actually somewhat of a of a kind of liability more than it is an asset finally you know big companies just tend to have a lot of staff and that's not me being rude about these people but they've joined a big company because they enjoy being part of a big thing they probably don't want to get individually famous they probably want a degree of safety that comes from big companies i think increasingly it's it's sort of small people who dream big who want to make a name for themselves who are quite happy to take risks those are the kind of people that drive things forward and those people now find themselves in small companies that they start up or small companies that they join and so you talked one of the one of the things that jumped out which really fits around this was about unlearning what you know that i suppose it's an incredibly tough thing to do when it comes to trying to find the right talent to really drive your business do you favor those that actually don't have industry knowledge i i think the internet and the modern world now mean that knowledge is probably less important than it's ever been before and your ability to learn for yourself, to be curious, to have very adaptable and flexible skills, your ability to have relationships with people and pull in experts when you know you don't know enough. I think we actually see a world where a very different profile of person is helpful. It involves a mixture of these sort of deep specialists. Like, you know, if you are going to create a mattress company from scratch today, you do actually need someone that knows everything about foam 
and spring design and product design. You can't just have some sort of naive person coming in going, well, let's make it out of marshmallows. You also need someone that's a bit more of a generalist and they're going to have the sort of breadth of knowledge that means that they uh, can sort of join the dots in different ways and they can understand what payment layers will mean in their website and they understand what the tax implications will be of fabricating it at different places. And you need this sort of combination, I think, of the depth and the Brit and the breadth. But above all else, you need to have the sort of softer skills to get those people to work together can we talk about education for a moment because i thought that was a really yeah. interesting part that you touched on you yeah. talk i mean to, to you directly you said that in the last year a well-curated twitter feeds has served more than your entire masters and that some yeah. of the relationships you've built through linkedin have been stronger yeah. than those from university what do you suppose is the future of what we define as education well i mean i i end up sounding more sort of disruptive than I mean to here but I genuinely think that we have to look back on what the role of education is in the world and I think so far we've applied this muscle memory to education where we just assume it's about a certain thing and that thing is largely unchanged since you know the sort of 10th century when you know religious authorities needed to have pastors that would sort of carry on the the sort of the 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 thinking of religion and then that passed the military structure that needed people to carry out commands and then that moved to sort of the industrial revolution and factories were built on the idea that everyone would perform a certain task and people had to be interchangeable so we've created education which is very much about making sure that everyone is identical to each other and that everyone is as good as as many things as possible based on knowledge and it's based on similarity and it's based somewhat on conformity as well. The question I always ask at the start of this book is what would this look like if we started it today? And if we were really to think about what education is, it's to give us the tools and the values and the skills and the knowledge we need to be a functioning, productive, happy, successful, useful sort of morally aligned adults and that involves a degree of career preparation but we we have no understanding of what careers in the future will be like you know the notion of a social media influencer or the notion of a coder or a morality expert in ai like none of these jobs existed before if you think i mean this comes from sort of sir ken robinson but if you think that a, a five-year-old today will become an adult in i guess sort of 2050 like 2050 is a year we can't begin to comprehend. So this idea that we're going to put them through this process of learning, um, you know, mathematical skills and calculus and French, like I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying we can't be we can't be 100% confident that that's right, because it may well be that we don't need to speak French and we don't need to speak Cantonese and we don't need to code because all of that stuff is done for us. And then we probably need to sort of focus on things like imagination and creativity and empathy and relationship building and adaptability and being comfortable with change and being good at uncertainty, because those are probably the characteristics that are going to help us most in the world. And that means that we need to form these relationships. And Twitter is just an amazing device to sort of pull in all these experts to know about things that I've got massive interest in and no knowledge about. Um, and I just think that's a sort of really interesting way to sort of think about education. And it doesn't become a course, it becomes a sort of attitude. It doesn't have a start point and an end point. It becomes sort of lifelong. Um, it sort of self-nurtures itself because you contribute to conversations that you learn back from. Like, it's just a very exciting thing. It's interesting. Yeah, I always think of Twitter not as a social media platform, but as somewhere to go and learn. I think it's... Um... Yeah. It, yeah. It's, a, it's, it's kind of, I suppose, it's a challenge for them because obviously... 
um, from a user active user perspective and financially it doesn't quite sort of tick the boxes but it serves a completely different purpose which is um is, is a shame that it doesn't seem to be recognized quite in the same way i don't think yeah i think it's quite um it's not the most accessible of platforms like a lot of people on my twitter feed moan about how bad their twitter feed is and how angry people are and my feed isn't like that and it's not because i'm particularly clever i think i've just spent quite a lot of time in in sort of growing this network of people i can learn from and i think um I know it's a bit like saying books are crap because look at my <laughs> library. You know, it's like, well, have you gone to a friend's house and looked at their books? Have you like gone to a bookstore and talked to people about what books you should buy? Like the, the problem is not the books. The problem is how many you bought and, and you know, why you bought them and how, and how many you have. Yeah, I mean, in practical terms, I, I use lists. I mean, I, I think um, I, I can see the challenge with your Twitter feed. I mean, literally create a list and and narrow down quite specifically maybe it's five ten yeah. fifty people i mean yeah it, it depends on your approach but um yeah for me personally i find it incredibly valuable it's um yeah I and mean, i don't know if you want to get distracted on this but but one thing to know is um there is so much stuff that's written and if i'm generous about 99 percent of it is complete crap and about one percent of it is life-changingly brilliant and our main problem today is dealing with that abundance and if you can find someone like a sort of Rory Sutherland um, or a Sir Ken Robinson, um, you suddenly access this world of just incredible thinking. Um, I mean, I like Alain de Baton as well. And you just realize that one of those articles, you know, gives you so much joy and information and it makes you think about things differently. It's worth like 10,000 other ones. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I, I think we're in an age of there's just this madness in terms of the amount of content we can consume um, <laughs> yeah. yeah and it's, i mean um, I'm, yeah I'm sorry. and there's just a lot of crap i mean like i mean hopefully i can be a little bit rude but there's 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 companies that are big management consultancy companies that will just recycle the same this is what 5g means and this is how much ai will be worth and the internet of things means that one day your fridge will tell you what to order and it's just the same things that have been rewritten and rewritten every year for the last eight years um but it's just nice to sort of escape that crap yeah i agree i, I think for me to, just to, to carry from your point there i, I think that there's a few people i mean yourself obviously um i, I love reading what you put out um scott <laughs> i kind of have to say that but it is genuinely true um, <laughs> that's very kind like I've, I've never thought that i'm necessarily in the same league as other people but yeah, I, I aspire to be so i mean seth godin um yes scott galloway yeah. scott galloway for me is fantastic he's yeah definitely. absolutely totally agree totally agree yeah um so what what else is in the pipeline? Um, I've seen a few bits popping up on your Twitter stream. You were talking about some new projects coming in March. What what's what's next for you? What are you planning? Yeah, I mean, um, I've I've learned quite a lot about myself in the last year, and one of the things is I'm really good at coming up with potentially good ideas, and then I'm really crap at actually following through with them. <laughs> um, and I hate that sort of abundance. So I have about, I have a list of about 15 projects I want to do. And I think what I might do is choose about three of them to do myself and to do in quite a sort of egocentric way where maybe I'll make some money or maybe I'll get a bit famous as a result of making something happen. And then the others I'll just sort of put on LinkedIn or something and just say, look, here is a program of ideas. I really want to come and, and take, you know, take foot in the world but realistically, I don't have time to do them. Does anyone please take this and do this? 
um, because I've just got way too much stuff to do. Obviously, I work full time for the publicist group, um, mainly at Zenith, um, and that keeps me very busy. I'm also speaking at quite a lot of events around the world. I've got kind of the inkling of a new book in my brain, um, which I'm trying to sort of um, keep away from my um, sort of fingers for as long as possible because I've got a proper job to do in the meantime. Um, and I sort of run this event called Interesting People, Interesting Times, where I try and get sort of fascinating people to talk about topics that they're passionate about. Um, but a key focus for me is actually making stuff because I feel quite vulnerable. I, I go around the world and I say, this is not good enough. And why don't people do this? And here are things that should be made in the world. And I'd quite like to now turn around and say, and this is what I'm doing about it. And I'm learning from it. And it isn't as easy as I thought it was. Like, I want to be a bit more um, sort of honest about trying this stuff. And um, I, w I was going to ask you actually about your events because um, I think it's an interesting space in terms yeah. of redefining events. And I, quite selfishly, we, we run um, the Martech Festival here and we're always trying okay. to better challenge what, what we think an event should be and working yeah. really, really hard to unlearn everything I know about events um, and try yeah. and get people <laughs> to challenge me. So I'd, I'd love to yeah. pick your brains on, you know, I suppose, what do you think redefining an event, a conference, a summit is and and what do your events currently look like yeah so um it's a very good question it's when i get asked quite a lot and the reality is it's really hard to make a good event like i, I think the question sort of somehow presupposes there is this magical new format that can be tried that suddenly is going to make everyone really happy um i think it's just hard like there it's very hard to find good speakers um it's very hard to create networking aspects it's very hard to run a panel it's very hard to do workshops. So I think, I think we might have to just accept it's hard. Um, I think I'd love to see more um, disagreement in the world and for us to unleash the energy that happens when two very smart, um, perhaps different types of people discuss the same point. Like I see a lot of consensus. I see a lot of group thinking. I see a lot of politeness at these events, but I think we need to sort of create a bit more tension. Um, I think we probably need to experiment with different formats, um, you know, find a way to get people to work together on a project as part of these events. Um, I think we need to celebrate more risk taking. I think we need to celebrate spontaneity a little bit more. Um, so there are lots of things that I think are worth trying. Um, my particular event is quite sort of different in that it's effectively a kind of, um, it, it's a bit like a sort of TED talk environment meets people being quite drunk in a pub um, <laughs> <laughs> so the idea that, is that... if in doubt I mean, if, if nothing else as long as there's alcohol whatever you're doing it will improve well it is true especially if you're sort of british because we do tend to sort of even though the events are mainly in new york we do tend to sort of approach these things with a bit of sort of sort of timidness um yeah so i i try and find people that are fascinating i try and find people that are extremely articulate i try and find people that have got charisma and I get them to talk about something they're passionate about for between sort of 15 and sort of 30 minutes. Um, and it's oddly hard to find people like that. And you feel very vulnerable when there's someone talking that's not particularly good because you sort of look around the room and you think, oh my God, you know, we're taking up people's time here and this isn't that great. Um, so I've, I've ended up, um, so I kind of, I run it with, the, with a lady called Adriana Stan and we, we sort of work quite hard together on finding people that are good at this. And often it's authors that are particularly good. Often authors have done a great job of digesting vast amounts of information and finding a way to sort of articulate it quite succinctly. 
Um, so we've had Scott Galloway, he came along one. Derek Thompson from Atlantic, he's come along. Um, Maria Konnikova from the New York Times, she came along. And we've, we've been really lucky to get people who are notable and to every right, have every right to charge us like tens of thousands of dollars to be there. And in fact, they do it for free. Wow. Yeah, that's... Um... That's the challenge. That's the challenge. Is, is yeah. Get, uh, Jaron, Jaron Lanier was there, the last one. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's been great so far. Um, you, you were recently at CES. Um, I'm yeah. a bit of a loaded question to ask you, what did you make of this year? Because I've, I've clearly read <laughs> <laughs> your article on the drum. I've gone for your tweet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but what, what were your thoughts? I think, um, I think, uh, so marketing is an interesting discipline. And I think there was a period in the world, I believe, I mean, I wasn't around for it, where marketers were part of the production process and they'd almost sort of travel around the world and absorb all of the consumer understanding. And they'd sort of then turn around to their factory and sort of say, look, we need Jaffa cakes that are yellow and sort of have green sprinkles on top, or we need a car that's gonna be able to carry 10 people or, like I feel like the manufacturing process used to be driven by a degree of customer understanding. And when you walk around CES these days, you realize there's this wonderful enthusiasm and absolutely brilliant engineering and superb um, implementation of ideas that I think should never really have seen the light. And at the same time, there are very, very few ideas that perhaps are not that well produced, but are brilliant somewhat and need a bit more thought and technology behind them. Um, so I always feel quite strange when I walk around because I'm kind of buoyed by the enthusiasm of it all, but I just wish that somehow the energy was aligned more around people and what they want more than people with white coats that make stuff because it's fun. <laughs> and um, <laughs> what, what are you seeing? What do you think you're seeing in terms of um, consumer behavior and patterns, you know, across the entire consumer landscape that businesses are completely missing at the moment? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think a couple, I mean, I could talk for ages about this. I mean, one thing is they don't realize quite how irrelevant their company is to people. Um, I think when you work in marketing, you're surrounded by people that talk about brand pyramids and brand onions and customer journeys. And I think they've never really met a normal person because, you know, people do not research different types of pasta and then sort of go to Tesco and sort of read the packaging and see if there's a QR code where they can get behind the scenes footage of someone cooking pasta. <laughs> like, like people have no time. People have absolutely no time. Like they're, they're spending their whole life worried that their husband or wife is having an affair, that their kid's getting bullied at school, that their car's about to break down, that their mortgage rates might go up. That's how people really are. And a lot of what we do is really about trying to belong in someone's head in a tiny, tiny, tiny space that is just going to give them a bit of reassurance that what they're about to buy is not crap or that the shampoo that they're about to buy is going to make them feel a little bit excited when they put it on their scalp. Um, so I think we need to be mindful that the brands and the products that we make are much less important to normal people than we think. And another aspect of that will be about making life more simple. Um, like I have a very unusual life and I need to be really aware of the fact that normal people do not check into hotels on a daily basis and they don't try and find flights between Istanbul and you know Jakarta normally. 
but I'm surrounded by companies that make it really hard for me to spend my money with them. Um, so whether it's how many times you have to click on things to buy it on a website, whether it's the long forms that you have to fill in with your phone number for the 37th time, whether it's uh, car companies that have got a Porsche on the forecourt that they don't even think about telling you you can get for another $50 a day. Like I think companies just need to get really good at making life easy for people. Um, and a huge part of that is customer service as well. Um, so those, those, those are two thoughts just to sort of put out there for now, but I could talk for quite a long time about it. <laughs> Tom, I really, really appreciate that. Um, it's been fantastic. Um, I just want to say um, if there's anything we can ever do to help you in any of your projects whatsoever, um, we're literally just an email away. You just need to ask. Help yeah. We'll help wherever we can. Um, no, that'd be great. I've, I've absolutely um, loved chatting with you. I really do appreciate yeah. it. It's been um, great. Yeah, and it's been good fun. For our readers, I can't recommend enough. You need to grab a copy of Digital Darwinism. Um, it's fantastic. Um, we will be back next week with a new interview. Um, but thanks very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Cheers, Tom. Thanks very much. I've just... Is that good? You...